In August 1968, radicalism was everywhere. Cultural revolution was a couple of months old and going full steam ahead in China. Paris had only just avoided a student-led revolution. America had their anti-Vietnam war protesters, black power militants and hippies threatening that safe 1950s suburban ideal. And the UK had the swinging 60s. Into all this, the Beatles released a song called Revolution. In it, John Lennon addresses angry protesters directly, mocking their solutions and constitutions, and telling them that if they're up for destruction, they can count him out. But if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, he sang, you ain't gonna make it with anyone anyhow. For all his countercultural credentials, sentiment went down badly among left-wing radicals who felt Lenin was being complacent. Freeing your mind is all very good, they thought, but sometimes you have to smash shit up too. Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, as Mao put it. It's not a dinner party, as he also put it. After reflecting on the pushback, Lenin tried to make up for it by writing Power to the People which deliberately referred to his previous song, Revolution, and tried to set the record straight. Say you want a revolution? We better get on right away, went this one. By 1971, John Lennon was telling reporters that he proudly wears a Chairman Mao badge. I should have never said that about Chairman Mao, he said. Why the change of heart? How did this aging Chinese autocrat become so endearing to people all over the world who pined for something better? It's time to look at the influence and consequences of Maoism. And if you know anything about Maoism at all, it won't surprise you to hear that this episode contains some nasty stuff. Looking back at those crazy years from now, 2022, with all the documentaries and books and professors and YouTube videos explaining how things went down, it's easy to wonder how young Western idealists could be so captivated by a movement which, however you look at it, left a lot of people dead. Great leap forward, Mao's plan to pull China kicking and screaming into industrial communism, is estimated to have killed tens of millions of people through famine between 1958 and 62. And things were hardly a bed of roses the rest of the time either. But as ever, things are much cloudier at the time when it's occurring. And with a certain amount of exoticism about the Far East, a heavy dose of ignorance about the reality in China, and a penchant for cherry-picking the most attractive parts of a flexible ideology, Mao's ideas and reputation travelled far and wide. It's not a stretch to say that Maoism caught the imagination of left-wing activists all over the world, and was tried to varying degrees of ferocity in many places. For some it was a fad, but for others it became a way of life which endures to this day. Over the next two episodes, we're going to take a look at a few of them. First though, perhaps we should try to nail down what is meant by Maoism or Mao Zedong thought. Maoism is a continuation of communist thinking originating with Karl Marx, whereby the people oppressed by capitalism will overthrow their rulers through class struggle and beat a path through socialism to communism. The first state to attempt to realise the communist dream was the Soviet Union, with its intellectual leading light being Vladimir Lenin. So for all pre-Mao versions of communism, it's Marxism-Leninism which provides the theory. Marxism, 
While communism should mean the end of the state, Lenin was keen to keep the Communist Party in charge of things. This was called the Vanguard Party, and after seizing the reins of power, it kind of channels the will of the people and makes decisions on their behalf. You might say that sounds like a dictatorship, but a Marxist would point out that it's actually the dictatorship of the proletariat, so it's okay. Russia wasn't necessarily the country which was most ripe for a communist revolution. At least, Marx didn't think so. It was too agrarian, too feudal, too enthralled to its ruling czarist elite, lacking the social consciousness to make throwing off the chains of oppression something that people might try. If they did do away with the czar, thought Marx, they'd probably just get on with liberal capitalism. Still, there were the educated urbanites, such as Lenin and Trotsky, and something of an industrial worker base, or proletariat, to organise with. It was more suited to the prospects of a communist revolution than China was. So when Mao came along, he had to rethink things all over again. Maoism primarily differs from Marxism-Leninism because of the circumstances in which Mao found himself. Like Russia, China didn't have the developed capitalist economy which is supposed to buckle under the weight of its own contradictions and usher in socialism. But more so than Russia, China was absolutely full of peasants, extremely underdeveloped. And the industrial proletariat, which is supposed to be the group that brings forth the revolution, didn't really exist. Mao thought, well, we've got peasants, so peasants will have to do. The Chinese Empire had already been overthrown by the generation before Mao, Sun Yat-sen, who we've mentioned many a time on this podcast being the man most associated with that. And for the first half of the 20th century, China was shaking off the European colonial powers which controlled parts of the country, and fighting among itself, and constantly under threat from the Japanese. This meant that anti-imperialism and nationalism was a strong part of Mao's version of Marxism. Imperialists, Mao famously argued, are just paper tigers. They appear strong, but without the support of the people, they are weak. With concepts such as the mass line and the protracted people's war, Mao theorizes a way for the non-proletariat masses to become co-opted by the nascent revolution. If you win the people over by responding to their needs, they're likely to support you when you're waging guerrilla warfare against the state. And indeed, in the final stretches of the Chinese Civil War in the late 1940s, the people's sympathies lay with the problem-solving communists, not the dictatorial nationalists headed by Chiang Kai-shek. This all makes for excellent propaganda. The first that most of the outside world heard about Mao was from an American journalist called Edgar Snow, from his book Red Star Over China, compiled while visiting Mao and his young communist party as they continued their long struggle against Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists in the 1930s. Snow met some of the CCP's biggest names, and although he wasn't a communist himself, his account was pretty sympathetic. Here were the renegade idealists, opposed to fascism and living an honest, egalitarian life in the countryside. They'd only recently finished the Long March, where the embattled communists trekked some 9,000 kilometres in about a year to escape being butchered by the nationalists. It was a great feat of survival, 
a myth of resilience and perseverance, a story of David and Goliath, was not alike. Maoism was also characterised by guerrilla warfare, feminism, at least notionally, if not in practice, and self-criticism. In explaining the importance of self-criticism, Mao said, Dust accumulates in a room if it is not cleaned. Faces get dirty if not cleaned. Which is more than a little ironic considering Mao's notoriously bad hygiene. But self-criticism, in practice at least, has a higher purpose than just giving people an opportunity to debate issues and put things right. As the struggle sessions and forced self-criticisms of the Cultural Revolution in the 60s and 70s show, these were spectacles of denunciation and humiliation in which people were aggressively put in their place. Go through that, or see someone else going through it. You'd be a goody two-shoes until the end of your days. The self-criticism aspect enables certain cult-like behaviours to enter Maoist groups, and that was the case in Brixton, South London, swinging 60s. Aravindan Balakrishnan was a radical from Singapore who moved to London and established the Maoist Workers Institute at the end of the decade. It went underground and developed into a cult after a run-in with the police. Balakrishnan would do lectures every day and make the members engage in self-criticisms. His daughter was born into this increasingly violent little world and had no contact with the outside, no chance to go to school. She had no friends or affection. Wasn't even told who her mother was even when her mother died after falling out of a window. She called her dad Comrade Bala, and just as she would have done in any communist dictatorship worth its salt, she sang songs in praise of the leader. Comrade Bala's daughter was called Comrade Prem. She was taught that he was basically an all-seeing god. Bala's sidekick was an imaginary machine called Jackie, which stood for Jehovah, Allah, Christ, Krishna, Immortal, Israel. Jackie punished people if they didn't do good, such as the Prime Minister of Malaysia, who Jackie had killed, apparently. Prem was told that lightning would strike her down if she went outside, but if Bala stepped in to inflict the beatings himself, Jackie wouldn't need to, which, in this twisted way, was seen as a nice thing. Josephine Herival, who joined the cult in 1976, helped Prem get out one day to get medical help in 2013 and thereby brought this whole thing to the attention of the police. Bala was charged with rape, sexually assaulting two women, and imprisoning his own daughter. He was sent to prison for 23 years. Of course, Josephine, who had helped Prem get the medical help, well, she regrets that her actions led to his arrest and the end of the cult. Well, as a member of a cult, that's hardly surprising, I suppose. She says that the allegations were made up, telling the police that she wasn't a slave although she was brainwashed enough to believe in the power of Jackie. On the other hand, for Comrade Bala's daughter, Prem, it had all fallen apart as she noticed his prophecies not coming true. She never bought the bullshit, but endured 30 years of imprisonment. At the Workers' Institute, the Maoist ideology came far behind the cult of Bala himself. He loved totalitarian dictatorships, his daughter said to Sky News in 2016 because he wanted to be like Stalin, or Mao, or Pol Pot. Or everyone listens to him. It's an oft-repeated irony that communist movements, which in theory do away with hierarchies, end up with one man at the top who everyone else must submit to. This is not just the case with Mao, but also with Stalin, Pol Pot, Ceausescu, 
Castro, Mugabe, and the Kims of North Korea. It was also the case in Peru, where in 1969, soon after visiting China, Abimel Guzman established a Maoist guerrilla movement and flipped it on its head, going directly to the personality cult before achieving any of the revolution. His movement was called Shining Path and developed the doctrine of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. South America was no stranger to rebellions and revolts since the days of throwing off the old colonial powers, but Shining Path was so extreme that it targeted other leftist groups and even the peasants it was supposedly there to liberate from the oppressive Peruvian state. Women and children were not spared in the massacres and bombings committed by the Shining Path. Guzman's antics were so wild and detrimental to the cause that some wondered if he was a CIA mole put there to mess up any chances of achieving an actual revolution. Guzman even labelled Castro's Cuba an advanced bourgeois state. Among the more cultish elements of his incarnation of Maoism was the way his bloodlust was written into his modus operandi. The blood of peasants was deemed to be fundamental to the journey towards liberation. Guzman called it a quota, as if death itself somehow unlocked progress. He did leave many dead, but made little progress. He didn't follow Mao's ideas of the mass line, that is, the process of building on ideas provided by the masses and thereby getting the support of the masses. And he was arrested in 1992 and the movement pretty much died out, although it still exists in some form to this day. Just as Mao had his admirers in the world of culture, so did Goodsman. The first song and Rage Against the Machine's first album is Bomb Track, and the original video showed support for the then-imprisoned Goodsman. Although they did back away from that show of support later. Anyway, in 2021, Maoist parties and communist ideologues were there to lament the death of Abimel Goodsman, who they called Presidente Gonzalo or Chairman Gonzalo. Goodsman wasn't some hard-up peasant or proletarian worker under the thumb of the capitalists. He came from a well-off family and had a decent education. This isn't an uncommon journey for revolutionaries, such as Che Guevara, Vladimir Lenin and Pol Pot. Goodsman was never successful in bringing about revolution and bringing his cult to the government of Peru, but Pol Pot managed just this in Cambodia, and the results were devastating. Pol Pot stands for Politique Potentielle, or Potential Politics, a curious name for the son of a Cambodian farmer. But Saloth Tsar, which was his birth name, was a privileged kid and was well-educated in Cambodia, which was then ruled by the French. He was one of the lucky few in Cambodia who was able to pursue further studies in France, and it was here that his politics began to take root. The backdrop of the Pol Pot story is the situation in Vietnam where another well-educated communist, Ho Chi Minh, was leading the revolution. When the French got pushed out of Vietnam in 1954, the country became split between the communist north and the pro-West South, with a neutral Cambodia right next door. This situation caused a lot of political turmoil in Cambodia, which led to a civil war in which, eventually, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge party was fighting the Kingdom of Cambodia, as well as supporting the communists in Vietnam. In return, the USA was bombing Cambodia, dropping twice as many bombs on the country as they had on Japan during World War II, and killing many civilians in the process. Around the same time as the Americans leave the region in 1975, the Khmer Rouge win in Cambodia. 
For Vietnam, the new reality means a difficult transition into the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. For Cambodia, the new reality means one of history's worst genocides. Although his brand of communism was in the Marxism-Leninism vein, Pol Pot was strongly influenced by Mao, especially because of the colonial context in Cambodia, the large number of peasants and the guerrilla warfare. Pol Pot's Cambodia was supported by Mao's China through money and policy ideas, although Premier Zhou Enlai warned against hastily pursuing radical reforms. As we heard in the last episode, Zhou had no illusions about the great leap forward and the famine in China, nor the destabilising effects of descending into a cult. Still, Pol Pot implemented his own great leap forward when he established a new totalitarian state called Kampuchea. The idea was an agrarian socialist utopia based on self-sufficiency. They reset the calendar at year zero and removed people from the cities to work the land, where everyone wore black pyjamas and a checkered scarf called a krama. The so-called new people, those from the cities, were to be untethered from their old lives and made indistinguishable alongside the peasants, except for enduring even harsher treatment. As the journalist John Pilger noted in a 1979 documentary about the era, it was the dawn of an age in which there will be no families, no sentiment, no expressions of love or grief, no medicines, no hospitals, no schools, no books, no learning, no holidays, no music, no song, no post, no money, only work and death. The quick reforms and terrible treatment of people led to disease and starvation, but most of the regime's victims were the result of ideology or paranoia. Pol Pot implemented a radical reversal of the social hierarchy, so that the more educated you were, the more righteous your persecution. This is where the cliché about the Cambodian genocide comes in, that you'd be killed if you wore glasses. It's not far from the truth. The peasants were now in charge, and a vicious reckoning was encouraged. Violence became widespread and arbitrary, overseen by the Khmer Rouge's cadres around the country. Children were recruited and brainwashed, and told to execute people or perform depraved medical experiments on prisoners. The role reversal made the student attacks on teachers in China's Cultural Revolution look like, well, child's play. Stalin and Mao both had caused the deaths of tens of millions by the time they ended their long reigns, be it through purges, executions or mismanagement. Pol Pot was in power for less than four years, but managed to kill off up to a third of his own population. This has been called autogenocide, or dystopicide. It wasn't a purge or a famine, it was calculated mass murder. Interestingly, it was the communists next door, in the new state of Vietnam, who put an end to Pol Pot's brief but also way too long tenure as ruler of Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge had a strong ethnic element to their persecution and killed any Vietnamese they could find living in the country. They invaded Vietnamese islands and made incursions into Vietnam, Laos and Thailand, killing villagers, considering all this to be part of the historical Cambodian territory. Which doesn't really add up if everything before year zero is forbidden from memory, but there you go. Eventually, the Vietnamese could stand it no more and they reacted, invading Kampuchea and taking the capital in January 1979. In response, Mao's China invaded Vietnam, all the communist states turning on each other, 
Chinese weren't even getting on with the Soviets by this point. The Chinese war with Vietnam probably shows that they were not very much aware of the extent of the suffering in Cambodia, because ethnic Chinese there were also being exterminated, and I don't think the CCP would have tolerated that. In the years since, the CCP has tried to claim that it didn't support the Khmer Rouge. The final word on this chapter about Maoism beyond China's borders goes to India and Nepal, to the Maoists who have managed to hang on way into the 21st century in some form, and despite having their issues, haven't become self-destructive, maniacal cults. While Mao was around, neighbouring Nepal was shuttling between being fragile democracies and monarchies. In 1996, long after Mao was gone and Maoism had become an awkward memory in Chinese political circles, Nepal's Maoist Communist Party made a coup attempt in their country, which turned into a civil war which lasted 10 years, led by Pushpa Kamal Dahal, or Prachanda, who managed to make himself Prime Minister a couple of times since then. The Maoists and the Marxist-Leninists eventually combined in 2018 to form the Nepal Communist Party, which sits alongside more democratic parties in the parliament. By Maoist standards, except for the drawn-out civil war, is pretty free from controversy, and Nepal is the only country in the world that has a communist president, although the country is a parliamentary republic with multiple parties. Less successful in terms of gaining power is the Naxalite movement in the forests of India, who operate in what is known as the Red Corridor, which cuts through almost the entire country. One of the tenets of Maoism is the protracted people's war, and this is nothing if not protracted. The movement was founded by Charu Majumdar, in the late 1960s, who sought to give the tradition of tribal resistance in India a Maoist flavour as the new country emerged from British rule. For more than 50 years, they've been waging war against the Indian government, resisting the encroachment of capitalist and state forces as they steal local resources and exploit the land. The Naxalites kill police and steal their weapons where they can, and serve the needs of some of India's most impoverished rural communities, providing food and medicine and education generally with a red propagandist inflection. Designated terrorists by the state, police attempts to crack down on the Naxalites have led to indiscriminate killing of random citizens who happen to live in these areas. The strength of the movement comes and goes over the years, but the state won't negotiate with them, and the lot of the villages in these forests isn't set to improve. The Indian government has two strategies. One is to raid the territory and kill as many Maoists as possible, and the other is to develop the area and undermine the Naxalites' role as a kind of de facto local government. Whatever happens, the Maoists' hope of leading an insurgency all the way into government is a lost cause. It's just never going to happen. Apart from London's Maoist Workers' Institute cult, the cases of Maoism around the world that I've mentioned in this episode all have a common thread, beyond being labelled Maoism, that is. The common thread is the post-colonial context, some of the most enterprising guerrilla movements have arisen as a country pulls itself out from under the control of a colonial master and begin nation-building in a world that's undergoing globalisation at a quick rate. The struggle for decolonization, harking back to the independence of the 13 American colonies from Great Britain, has often been a bloody affair, and it makes sense that a lot of movements that occurred during the Cold War took inspiration from left-wing politics. They were, after all, liberating themselves from oppression. They had, so to speak, nothing to lose but their chains. But alongside the getting rid of the imperial overlord aspect, 
liberated peoples needed a new project. So that's where the nationalism comes in, as a binding force around which to build a new country. In the latter 20th century, Maoism is just another potential ingredient alongside these other forces. The drive for revolution and the harnessing of nationalist zeal, each of which provides plenty of opportunities for violence. From India to the Congo, decolonization was often a violent process, just as violence was baked into the colonial management of oppressed people. At the end of the Cold War, when Moscow's Soviet empire folded, again violence was one of the tools used in building new states. What I'm trying to say is that while a lot of violence is associated with Maoism, and rightly so, let's not forget the violence which occurred with the partition of India, the right-wing dictatorships supported by America and South Korea and South Vietnam and South America, and also during decolonization in Egypt, Indonesia, the Congo, Uganda, Rwanda, and more. I'd say that the depravities of the 20th century have a lot of structural similarities over and above the ideologies that they got wrapped up in. The real character of each Maoist movement is most clearly defined by the local cultural political forces and by the opportunism of those who become leaders of these movements. Despite having basic teachings, Maoism is more of a banner around which some organised and gained support, rather than a hard and fast set of parameters that they abide to. Hence why you end up with so many ideological splits, so many devastating interpretations. In the next episode, we'll flip over the Maoist coin and look at how the ideology fared in the developed countries, as the Cultural Revolution became well known in the West, and whether anyone is out there still waving the red flag, Maoism. And for anyone interested in further listening to the uh, Pol Pot Cambodian genocide situation, I'd recommend the podcast In the Shadows of Utopia by Lachlan Peters for a deep dive into that. Um, It's really a heartfelt, very well-researched and very contextualised piece of work.